hear about it's Sunday right. services and anymore? That's, we're out for. Yeah. that's exactly what we're doing. And they go, well, that's not what we want. They terminate
Good morning, and a blessed and happy Mother's Day to all you ladies out there. What, you can't hear my indomitable voice, George? It's on. I'll speak louder. Let's go over a couple of announcements. Uh, most of these run in the mill. Please place your envelopes in the offering box. Andrea, of course, is our contact number in the prayer chain. We have days and praise and acts and facts out. Actually, they're in the pastor's study because we replaced them temporarily with donuts. <laughs> so help yourselves after service. Uh, baby Bottle Drive kicks off today, officially. And we'll end on Father's Day. So bring your coinage in or your dollar bills, whatever's easiest, and, and get the bottles full. Uh, we are having communion today after service, or has that been canceled? It's going to be next week. Okay. Moving it away from Mother's Day. Okay. Uh, just to make things simple, as Pastor just said, uh, we're going to have communion service next Sunday. And there will be a dinner to follow. Uh, there is a sign-up sheet as to what uh, you all can bring, if you'd be so kind to put that down. Uh, we're going to be supplying uh, chicken uh, for the dinner, and then uh, whoever wants to bring the pies and the goodies and maybe some potato salad. Side dishes, in other words, not dishes, right? Right, just side dishes, because we're going to be supplying the chicken uh, for the dinner, okay? All right, scripture for meditation, Exodus 2, verses 1 through 10, page 
Would you stand with us as we begin our service with opening prayer? Brother Tom Roth, it's so good to see you again. Would you please open our service with prayer? Amen. Please remain standing. You take the Trinity hymnal this morning. You turn to 719 in the Trinity. Seven one nine. Thank you. 
favorite hymn this morning? Don't all raise your hands at once. We'll take turns. Oh, Dan. Hi, Dan. I, I don't know where it's at, but it is well. It is well. Um, that should 493 in the brown. It may or may not be the piano player's favorite hymn. 493 in the brown. Do you have a reason for this one? I've always loved it. Absolutely. If you don't know the story behind this hymn, you should look it up. It's pretty amazing.
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. That'll be on page 418 in your pew Bible. 1 Samuel 1, 1 through 17, page 418. When you find it, kindly stand together with us. There was a certain man from Rathaim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other, Penuah. Penuah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. For Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penuah, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Anna was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace. And may God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. Father in heaven, we ask that you bless this holy and inspired scripture. In the name of Christ, amen. We take the brown hymnal this time and turn to number 536, 536 in the brown.
Oh, good. <clears throat> Our text today is First Samuel chapter one. This text of scripture brings before us a very familiar story, but beyond its value as an accurate record of historical occurrence, there are practical lessons which all of us can learn from Hannah and Elkanah's marriage and from their parenting. I think some introductive material is necessary here, however. Elkanah and his wife, Hannah, lived in the province of Ephraim land bearing the name of one of the sons of Jacob. They were of the Kohathite clan, Kohathite, who were Levites and were allotted a city within the province of Ephraim. You can find that in Joshua 21 and verse 5. Elkanah's name means possessed of God or God's possession. He had two wives, Hannah, her name means grace or gracious. The other wife was Peninnah, 
Penina means a mounted precious jewel. In other words, a cut stone. Um, think diamond, ruby, whatever would be a cut stone <laughs> uh, from a jeweler. Hannah was barren, but not naturally. No, the Lord had closed her womb, verse 5. Penina, on the other hand, had a number of children, perhaps as many as ten. Look at Elkanah's reference of ten children in verse 8. So we've got one who's very prolific and one who's barren. Year after year, Elkanah would travel to Shiloh, the place where the tabernacle had been erected, and there he would make sacrifices to God, and he would give portions of each offering as allowed by the law uh, to his two wives. But Hannah received a double portion, the scripture says, from from her husband, because the scripture says he loved her deeply, verse 5. So I think it was his way of showing her that although she was childless, she was loved and appreciated by him as much or more than Penina, who was able to give him children. This may have proved beneficial to Hannah, helped to serve her emotionally, except for one thing, verse 6 and 7. Because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Most commentators believe, and I am in agreement, that this rival is none other than Penina, the lesser wife. It's like Jacob's two wives, if you remember that story. Rachel and Leah. It's it's that being lived all over again. Rachel was loved by Jacob, but she was barren. Leah was prolific. She had many children. And she would use this against Rachel to try to stir up family trouble. Penina was most likely doing the same thing here with Hannah. The issue was definitely Hannah's barrenness because the text tells us that the rival's provocation was directly related to Hannah's womb being closed by the Lord. So we don't have to guess about it. And then Elkanah confirms the issue as being Hannah's barrenness when he encourages her to eat and drink. And he asks the question, don't I mean more to you than ten sons? So it's this issue of not being able to have children. I think we can empathize with Hannah, but we cannot identify with her. The culture in which she lived placed a great premium upon being able to produce children. You remember in more modern times the scandal of Henry VIII of England. He went through multiple wives looking for one wife to give him a son, not daughters. He didn't want daughters. 
And so he divorced or annulled or beheaded those who couldn't give him a son. Well, today, light bulb, we know that it is the male who is the determining factor in the sex of the children conceived. So Anne Boleyn lost her head for something that was essentially King Henry's own fault. I mean, if fault is the proper terminology for such matters. But he was a bloodthirsty man, and that's the way he saw things. Now it appears from our text that Hannah's barren state continued for many years, verse 7. And every occasion to worship at Shiloh was an occasion for Peninnah to rub it in. It's kind of like salt in the wound, you know. Hannah was childless, but she was fertile. And I'm ashamed to admit it, but cruelty like this exists sometimes in the house of God. It does. There are Christian people who are more concerned about their own self-importance and in order to make themselves look good, they will exploit the weaknesses, the fears, the faults of others in the body of Christ. I cannot believe that the Lord approves of such. Such behavior evidence a Christian spirit. Such behavior is to be expected by the people of the world, but not by the people of God. We are to be of such truth and wonderfulness with regard to one another that this kind of pettiness is not found in God's house. We are to enter into the hurts and the sorrows of our brethren, not use them as an occasion for adding more misery and more sorrow to their already discouraging situation. But this was obviously what was going on. Paul puts it this way. Love must be sincere, writes Paul. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position and don't be conceited. Romans 12, verse 9 and following. Wow, what a mouthful that text is. Hannah would not have had a rival within her family had the rival been practicing these Christian virtues. It's always amazing to me the failure of people to be able to place themselves in another person's shoes. In this case, a fellow woman, a wife, a mother, persecuting another woman, a wife, who would much like to be a mother. I mean, how hard can it be to project oneself into the same situation and say, I might be that barren wife. I could be the woman who has no children. I could be the one providing no heir for my husband. You have to think of the culture now in which we're talking about. But just like jealousy and envy fueled the family tensions between Rachel and Leah, 
So Peninnah and Hannah had no peace with each other for similar reasons. Now I do think it is commendable that we have no record in our text of Hannah retaliating against Peninnah as we do with Rachel (laughs) against Leah. We are told in verse 7 that the provocation of her rival caused her to weep. Her to cease from eating because of her distress. But there's no cursing. There's no bitter retort. Peninnah, you are a witch. (laughs) There's none of that. You're going to get yours one of these days. No, none of that. This is the evidence of Hannah's true godly spirit. The Bible teaches us, pray for those who mistreat you. Luke 6, verse 28. The context goes on to say, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? That's a good question. Even sinners love those who love them. As God's people, we are called to be godly. What does God do for those who insult him and blaspheme his name and his character? Well, the scripture tells us he is kind. I'm reading scripture. He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Wow. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Luke 6 verse 35. 36. He is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. Say, well, what are we supposed to do when someone is beating on us and tearing us down and mocking us and adding insult to injury? Well, you do what Hannah did. You take your case and you lay it before God. Verse 10. In bitterness of soul. O Lord Almighty. If you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me. But give her a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. This reference to the razor. was a Nazarite. No razor on his head. Anyone? Samson. To the Lord. There is value of in corporate prayer, but here it seems that even Elkanah was out of sync with Hannah's bitterness of soul. Now, he may have prayed about her barrenness, too. I think he probably did. But from his own words in verse 8, it appears that Elkanah did not see Hannah's plight to be as desperate as she. Well, of course not. (laughs) 
He has children by Peninnah. And it's not as important to him that Hannah have children too. I don't interpret this as unloving on his part because God says that he loved Hannah, verse 5. And that is in contrast to Peninnah's ability to produce heirs. And I think that's the point in verse 8. Don't I mean more to you, Hannah, than ten sons? Okay, Hannah was saying, Peninnah gives me children, but Hannah, don't you know, you have my heart. Isn't that far better? And we would expect any woman to agree. Oh, yes. It's far better that I am loved than that I have children. But we do not live in the oriental culture of that day. And we are not being persecuted on a continual basis because we have no children. Hannah can at least think of another option and it is this. I want to be loved and have children. What would be wrong with that? I want to be a loved wife and a loved mother. And to accomplish this, she makes her case before God in fervent prayer. Wow. That's what I want to talk to you about today, a mother's prayer. This prayer was born out of a heart of bitter anguish. Verse 10. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And when Eli the priest mistook her for being drunk, as the context bears out, because in praying she moved her lips as she prayed silently, but her explanation to the priest was this, I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I'm not drunk. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Verse 15 and 16. Brethren, let me ask, have you ever prayed to God out of great anguish and grief? Jesus did. The night of his arrest and trial... We read that Jesus requested his disciples to pray with him. And going a distance away from them, we are told, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Luke 22, verse 44. Let me tell you, this is hard praying. This is hard praying. This is troublesome praying. This is praying that has little comfort in it, but a lot of hard work in it. It 
And it's not as easy as one might think to pray when you're full of anguish and grief. It's difficult to focus on the essentials, to keep one's perspective, to fight the sorrow, and yet make your petition known. But there are benefits to those who prevail. The Bible says of Jesus, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him in his hour of praying with anguish. And of Hannah, we are told that Eli, upon hearing her explanation, pronounced the benediction upon her, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him, verse 17. It's okay, brethren, to pray when you're upset. In fact, it's one of the best things that you can do when you're upset. You're going to the only one who can really solve your dilemma. Hannah was barren. And her barrenness was not biological. She may have been ovulating just fine. God, for purposes known only to him, had closed her womb. Only God could reverse that decision. And that's what Hannah prays for. Look at verse 11. Remember me, Hannah prays. Do not forget me. Whatever anguish or grief is in your life, if you're a believer, you've got to know that God has allowed it and that only God can remove it. It will do you little good to curse God. As Job's wife suggested that he do. When his world fell apart and came crashing down on his head. No, if we believe in God for the good times. It is incumbent that we believe in him for the bad times to come. So Hannah teaches us this in her prayer. She's going through a bad time. Secondly, she teaches us the reasonableness of taking her problem to God. It's reasonable. Look at verse 3. We are informed that year after year, Elkanah would go to Shiloh. That was the worship center of the day. And he sacrificed to the Lord Almighty. Now when Hannah prays in verse 11, we are told that she prayed, O Lord Almighty. Whoa. Literally, this title, the Lord Almighty, that's used here of God, means the Lord of hosts. And it's the first time that we have this title in the Bible. What is significant about this title is that it stresses the absolute and undefeatable sovereignty of God over every power, every authority in the universe, whether we're talking about angels or demons or men or armies, God is Lord over these hosts 
and accomplishes his will in spite of any opposition. Wow, and I think that is marvelous. That's coming from Hannah's lips. This is her understanding of God. This title on Hannah's lip is one of great faith and great confidence. She is saying, Lord, my case is hopeless. There's nothing I can do to remedy my own barrenness. I cannot will myself to be a mother. I cannot visit the local fertility clinic. I cannot open my closed womb, but you can. And here and now I'm asking that you will. Don't you see the great faith in that? Have you ever prayed like that? Have you prayed with the full knowledge that God is the Lord Almighty? That there's nothing impossible with God? I love it. Our hesitancy to ask God for things in prayer can sometimes mean we don't think God has the power to change things either. Hmm. We shackle God with thoughts of impotency as though he, no less than us, is bound by circumstances beyond his control. Is that your view of God? Well, if that's the case, we need seek no further as to why such prayers go unanswered. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly, sincerely seek him. You can't come to God and pray without believing that he's going to do what you're asking. What kind of prayer is that? He rewards those who earnestly seek him. Hannah was so rewarded. Eli, speaking for God, told her, May God grant you what you have asked of him. You know, that's the equivalent of Eli saying, Hannah, God has heard your prayer. You have your request. She had prayed to the Lord Almighty, the one she believed could cure her barrenness, and her faith, her faith pleased God. Third, Hannah teaches us the necessity of earnest prayer. How badly did Hannah want a son? Just how sincere was she in her prayer? Answer. Sincere enough to take a vow, verse 11, she made a vow saying, Lord, if you give me a son... I'll give him back to you to serve you all the days of his life. Wow. 
There's something very unselfish in this. It reminds me somewhat of Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. When he could have prayed for anything in heaven or on earth to satisfy his own glory, what he prayed for was something which would bring the most glory to God and the most good to his people. He prayed for wisdom. Wisdom to rule Israel with integrity and justice. In other words, Solomon saw his kingship as something which existed for the glory of God and that it was that is exactly what he wanted most from God. The ability to lead Israel down the paths of righteousness for the glory of God. Now here is barren Hannah. She wants a baby. But she doesn't want a baby just so she can be like Peninnah and find justification for her own existence in being a mother to children and a wife to Alcana who can give him an heir. No, that's not why she wants a baby. She wants her son to exist for the service of God. She says so. For the glory of God. For the good of Israel. And she wants this bad enough to make a vow to God. To make a solemn promise punishable by judgment if breached, she makes the promise to give back to him the son he gives to her. Let me ask mothers, have you ever thought of your children as being on loan from God? As yours, okay, but not yours? Have you ever conceived of your children as not simply adding to your statue as a mother, but as God's possession for his glory? To do with what he pleases? When parents begin to think of their children in these ways, it revolutionizes their thinking and their actions. We begin to see that our children do not exist for us, even though they are biologically connected to us. We see a higher purpose for them, one which fits into the scheme of God and which, when turned over to God, can mean his glory and the good of the Christian community. Often we're too possessive of our children unwilling to give them to God for fear that we will lose them. This was hard for Hannah. She had waited for years and years and years to have one baby while Peninnah was producing her own football team. Let Peninnah give one of her many sons. She can afford it. Sadly, that's the way we think at times. But if we are sincere in our prayers for our children, we must answer with Job, the Lord gave. And the Lord has taken away. 
May the name of the Lord be praised. Few of us would dare pray, O Lord Almighty, if you will save my son, my daughter, I will give him, I will give her to you all the days of his or her life. I'm saying few parents would pray that. By the way, Hannah was sincere in her request. She wanted a son. She was willing to give her son away if God would but hear her prayer and grant her this request. Fourthly, Hannah teaches us that God answers prayer through the faithful application of the means that he provides. What did Hannah do when she prayed in faith? Verse 18. She went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Whoa. In other words, she believed Eli, the priest, and responded in a way that demonstrated her confidence that a child would be given to her by God. No longer downhearted. Her spirits were lifted. She believed God's prophet. Let's read on, verse 19 and following. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. And Elkanah lay with his wife, and the Lord remembered her. The text goes on to say that in time she conceived, gave birth to a son whom she named Samuel. The name Samuel means heard of God. God listened to me. And here's the result. When Mary, the fiancée of Joseph, conceived the Lord Jesus, it was clearly a miracle of God. The Bible makes it clear that Mary was pregnant before she and Joseph were married. And to protect the identity of Jesus to be none other than a child conceived of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says of Joseph, he had no union with Mary until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. Matthew 1 verse 25. Jesus was God's promised child to Mary. Not Joseph's child. But how did Hannah receive God's promised child to her? Well, not by way of a miracle. But by the normal sexual relations between herself and Elkanah, her husband. And I think this teaches us that God's normal way of answering prayer is through the practical application of the means that he commands of us, whatever those might be. One of our deacons observed with me that that's the normal way God works when people seriously commit themselves to prayer. God will use them to answer their own prayers by burdening their hearts for their own petitions. And I've seen that many times. Hannah could have cut off relationships with Elkanah and waited for a miracle child. 
but she would have probably died waiting. Instead, she had her role receiving and receiving the answered prayer from God. What I'm saying is you cannot pray for the salvation of your children and then never follow the means, never invite them to church, never confront them with the gospel, never give them good Christian literature to read and and, and counsel. (coughs) You don't just do one thing. Well, I'm going to pray to God about this. Leave it up to him. Of course, we, we leave it to him. But we are... Believing in God has means by which he answers our prayer. I'm still one who believes in the miracle working power of God. But I also believe that God's normal way of answering our prayers is through the employment of those means that he has ordained for us to accomplish his will. Often we have not because we work not. We're lazy. Careless indifferent to our role in the whole scheme of things. Hannah teaches us, believe, yes, but believe and obey, as the song goes, right? It's the obedience that shows you believe. Number five, Hannah teaches us that if you make a promise to God, you better keep it. Let me read it for you. When the Bible says, when you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to vow, I'm still reading scripture, it's better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. And do not protest, well, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the works of your hands? Stand in all of God. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 4 and following. Do you know that was in the Bible? Don't make promises to God if you don't intend to keep them because he's holding you to your promise. I could say it this way, that people who bargain with God often get more than they bargained for. Not because God welched on the deal, but because the petitioner didn't keep his or her part of the promise. Hannah kept her promise. When Samuel was weaned, usually that was about age three in Bible days. Verse 24, she took the boy with her. young. I'm reading scripture. She took the boy with her, young as he was, and presented him to Eli, saying, I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now... I give him to the Lord. Verse 27. What a woman of noble character. Hannah does not look upon Samuel as a little toddler and say, 
Well, you know, Lord, I, I, I know I made a promise, but I mean, he's so young, he's so helpless. How's that old priest Eli going to be able to care for him? He's going to be way up there in Shiloh. Well, I mean, what if he needs me? It takes days for me to reach Shiloh. No, there's none of that at all. God kept his part of the bargain. Hannah would keep her promise. And she didn't delay either. Hoping to stretch out some more years for Samuel to be with her at home. Oh no. As soon as he was able to eat solid food, he was weaned. She gave him to God's service. And by her sacrifice, Israel gained one of the greatest prophets and priests the nation was ever privileged to know. Wow. Think of the ministry. Of this child. So if you make a promise to God, keep it. Finally, Hannah teaches us, along with Eli the priest, that there's a place for prayers of the unspoken request. Are you amazed that Eli can say to Hannah, as he does say to her, and let me read it for you, may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him, and he doesn't have a clue as to the nature of her request. You know, sometimes, as in Hannah's case, people are so much in anguish of soul, they cannot share their pain with anyone. Though they very much see the necessity of and the desire for the supplication of God's people. I need people to pray for me, but I don't think I can tell them what's going on. We call these unspoken requests. We say, well, Hannah was alone in this. So she prayed. And Eli knew nothing of her requests. And that was that. Well, that's true as far as that goes. Look at verse 21. When the man Elkanah went up with all of his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, uh, Hannah did not go. Okay, what vow was that that Elkanah was going to fulfill? It says, Hannah did not go. I may be reading between the lines here, but I think that Hannah's vow became Elkanah's vow. In that in time, as he became privy to her vow, he entered into it by reason of his own prayer life and his own actions. He no less than Hannah had adopted her promise to God and was in total agreement with her decision. Okay, hon, you can't go. 
I'll go. I'll fulfill our vow to God about this, our son. Say, what's your point? Well, you and I do not always have to know the unspoken request of the person who is in anguish and grief over some concern, but as we pray for that person, as we pray with that person, their burden becomes our burden in time. What we are in dark about becomes clear to us, and we will find ourselves in concord with that request. I've seen that many times. The Lord burdens us with the burdens of those that we love in the Lord. And happily, the sharing of Hannah's request made it easier for her to give Samuel to the Lord. Her husband's support meant all the world to her. She couldn't go up there on this trip. So her husband would go. Be a stand-in with the worship center. So, what we see in Hannah is the model of a godly mother. Let me list it for you so you know. Number one, though persecuted by her rival, she does not retaliate, but instead commits her case to the Lord of hosts. Number two, she knew where to go to find relief for the anguish of her soul. She went to the Lord Almighty. That's the first time that title was used in Scripture. Wow. Number three, she prayed earnestly, vowing to give to God what was on loan to her in the first place. Number four, she herself became part of the answer to her own prayers as she applied God's means of conception. Number five, she kept her vow, being of strong character, not going back on her word. And finally, she demonstrated that unspoken requests hold as much weight with God as those spoken. When God's people take them up to themselves and share in the burden. You don't have to know all the details in order to pray for somebody. In closing, I would say I'm very thankful that Hannah is not unique. I am thankful that in God's family there are many daughters of Hannah who follow her example. And I think about that on Mother's Day. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the godly example of Hannah. Godly mother. Boy, she wanted this child so bad. She wanted a child so bad that she took a vow to God. And the vow basically said, Lord, I, 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 I just want him on loan. 
if you'll give me a child, if you'll give me a son, I'll give him back to you. I'll get to have him for a while. I'll get to raise him in the family. But when he's weaned, when he's older, I'll give him back to you. And it's going to hurt me to do that. It's going to make me sad to do that. But a promise is a promise. And Lord, I love you so much that I gladly keep my promise that you might have my son in your service. Lord, help us on thinking of mothers, Mother's Day. I think it's hard for moms to give up their sons and daughters, more so than dads. I say that because dads want to push their kids out and get them out in the world and teach them how to function on their own and be independent. But mothers have that clinging mentality, that nurturing mentality, that loving mentality. They don't want to see their children go. But Lord, I do thank you for godly mothers that let their children go and want their children to be used of God in a mighty and glorious way. Give us such mothers, we pray on this day. We pray specifically for our mothers. In Christ's holy name, with thanksgiving, amen. Okay, our closing hymn is 548 in the hymnal. 548 in the hymnal. Let's stand as we sing. of you are familiar with this hymn but I am not so Jared's going to play it once through for us Yeah.
chose that hymn because don't you think once in a while about your loved ones that have died and passed on, gone on? I do. I think about my mom and dad. I think about my dear wife. But beyond the sunset, there's a day coming for a reunion. And the reunion is not a day or an hour. It's eternity. need to think about that. Whatever sorrow comes your way in this world because of living in a sinful world, that all ends beyond the sunset. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises of your word. We thank you that we have a Savior that saves us all the way, not just in this life, but in eternity, for all of eternity. We thank you for the godly mothers, wives and mothers, that we have experienced in our lifetime. I go back a few generations. I think of my godly grandmothers on both sides of the family. And I think of their influence upon me and then on the grandchildren. And I know it's not accidental that they were part of my family. I was part of theirs. Couldn't have been born in another family, a God-hating family. But not that was not what happened. Your grace was sufficient for all things. I thank you for that. We need to be thankful today for our families, where God has placed us. And if we have people in our family that are yet distanced from God and have not found you yet, Lord, you find them, please. You find them and draw them into your kingdom. For your glory and their good, we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen. We are dismissed.